If you're surrounded by wolves who just ate your friend, then Stitcher will hold your hand till the end. This week's episode of Treblecast is brought to you by Stitcher Premium. That wasn't their corporate jingle or anything. I'd never presume to do something like that. Just a completely unrelated song I'm working on as part of a concept album. It's that kind of a, you know, early Radiohead, Seattle grunge scene, Vanessa Carlton vibe to it, with, you know, some of that lost children humming nervously to themselves as nightfalls kind of feel. Children do love to hum. Stitcher's the app that I use to listen to podcasts, and Stitcher Premium offers thousands of hours of original content, early access to new releases, exclusive bonus episodes and archives, and hundreds of stand-up comedy albums for, you know, when you need a laugh. And of course our show is available on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com and click Start Your Free Trial, and type in promo code DRABBLECAST to receive a full frickin' month of Stitcher Premium absolutely free. It helps the Drabblecast out if you do, and you can cancel at any time. But I doubt you'll want to. That's stitcherpremium.com, promo code DRABBLECAST. Hello, and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 413. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Y'all ready? It's HP Lovecraft Tribute Month here on the Drabblecast. Often described as the godfather of weird fiction, Howard Phillips Lovecraft's stories are among the foundations of modern horror. He launched a whole subgenre widely borrowed from even today, nearly 130 years later, called cosmic horror. Elder gods, unimaginable machinations, mysteries more timeless and vast than anything we can possibly imagine. The thin veil of reality that separates our feeble understanding of the known universe from the maddening chaos that truly lies behind it all. Each year for Lovecraft Month, we commission three top authors to write original, unpublished stories, just for the Travelcast, just for H.P. Lovecraft Month. This year, we're excited to bring you original mythos stories by award-winning authors Robert Reed, Sarah Gailey, and Shannon McGuire. And as always, we launch the month with a story by H.P.L. himself, and this year we're excited to present to you The Rats in the Walls. The Rats in the Walls first appeared in Weird Tales in 1923. The publisher of Weird Tales, J.C. Henneberger, described the story in a note to Lovecraft as the best his magazine had ever received, and it was one of the few Lovecraft stories anthologized during his lifetime in the 1931 collection Switch on the Light, edited by Christine Campbell Thompson. Those of you more familiar with some of the themes in Lovecraft's work might see this, I think appropriately so, as a Drabblecast adaptation of the original. The story is read to you by Patrick the Voice Bazil. Patrick was born and raised in Chicago. He's voiced everything from PSAs to major product brand commercials, to movie trailers to documentaries. Follow him on Twitter at Voice of Patrick. Lovecraft stories can be pretty damn tough to read as a voice actor, trust me. And I got a real kick out of hearing Patrick's outtakes and bloopers as he tried to navigate some of the stickier prose and bizarre-ass words in this one. 
Stick around after our outro this week for a fun blooper reel compilation. I think you'll really get a kick out of it. But for now, we bring you The Rats in the Walls by H.P. Lovecraft. The Rats in the Walls by H.P. Lovecraft. On July 16th, 1923, I moved into Exum Priory after the last workman had finished his labors. The restoration had been a stupendous task, for little had remained of the deserted pile but a shell-like ruin. Yet, because it had been the home of several of my ancestors, I let no expense deter me. The place had not been inhabited for a century since a tragedy of intensely hideous, though largely unexplained, nature had struck down the master of the house, five of his children, and several servants. Finally driving forth under a cloud of suspicion and terror, their illegitimate third son, my lineal progenitor, who had amidst some controversy been accepted as one of their own, the final survivor of a cursed line. Shaken by some horror greater than that of conscience or law, and expressing only a frantic wish to exclude the ancient edifice from his sight and memory, that ancestor, my ancestor, Walter de la Poer, fled south to Virginia, and there founded a family that throughout the next century had become known as de la Poer. Exum Priory had since remained untenanted, despite having been allotted to the estates of the nearby Norris family and had also been studied by many others because of its peculiar composite architecture. An architecture involving Gothic towers resting on Romanesque seamen substructures, whose foundation in turn was of an even earlier order. This foundation was a very singular thing, merged on one side with the solid limestone of the precipice, from whose brink the priory overlooked a desolate valley three miles west of the village of Anchester. Architects and antiquarians loved examining this strange relic of forgotten years, but the country folk nearby hated it. They had hated it a hundred years before, even, when my ancestors had lived there, as they hated it now, with the moss and mold of abandonment still upon it. The bare statistics of my ancestry I've always known, together with the fact that my first American forebear had come to this land under a maddened cloud of suffering. Of those details, however, I had been kept wholly ignorant through the policy of reticence always seemingly maintained by the De La Pores. Unlike our planner neighbors, we seldom boasted of crusading ancestors or other heroes. Nor was any kind of tradition handed down to us except what may have been recorded, sealed and forgotten before the Civil War for posthumous opening. The glories we cherished were those archives since that time, the glories of a proud and honorable, if somewhat reserved and unsocial, Virginia line. During the war, our whole existence changed with the burning of Carfax, as did our home on the banks of the James. My grandfather William, advanced in years, had perished in that incendiary outrage, and with him, and his house, the envelope that bound us all to our past. I can still recall that fire today, just as I saw it at the age of seven, with federal soldiers shouting, women screaming, 
while the Negroes howled and prayed. My father was in the army, defending Richmond, and after many formalities, my mother and I were eventually passed through the lines to join him. When the war ended, we all moved farther north, and I grew to manhood, middle age, and at last to wealth. Neither my father nor I ever knew what our hereditary envelope had contained. As I merged into the grayness of business life, I lost all interest in the mysteries which lurked far back in my family tree. Had I suspected their nature, how gladly I would have left Exum Priory to its moss, bats, and cobwebs. My father died in 1904, but without any message to leave me or to my only child, Alfred, a motherless boy of ten. It was this boy who later reversed the order of family information. For although I could give him only jesting conjectures about the past, he wrote me of some very interesting ancestral legends when the late war took him to England in 1917 as an aviation officer. Apparently, the De La Pores had a colorful and perhaps sinister history, he said. For a friend of my son's, Captain Edward Norris of the Royal Flying Corps, had neighbored our old dwelling in Anchester and related several peasant superstitions. Norris himself, of course, did not take them seriously, but they amused my son and made good material for his letters to me. However, it was this legendary which turned my attention to our family's own heritage and made me resolve to purchase back and restore the old house up north, which so many had eschewed. I bought Exum Priory in 1918, but was almost immediately distracted from my plans of restoration by the return of my son from war now a maimed invalid. During the two years that he continued to live, I thought of nothing but his care, having even placed my business under the direction of partners. It was in 1921 when I at last found myself bereaved and aimless, a retired manufacturer, no longer young, that I resolved to divert my remaining years to my newly discovered possession in Anchester. Leaving that December to visit the town in Massachusetts, I was entertained by Captain Norris, a plump, amiable man who had thought much of my son and secured his assistance in gathering plans and anecdotes to guide in the coming restoration. Exum Priory itself was a jumble of tottering medieval ruins perched perilously upon a precipice and denuded of floors and interiors save for barren stone. As I gradually recovered the image of the edifice, as it had been when my ancestors had left it long before, I began to hire workmen for the reconstruction. My son had told me that he was somewhat avoided during his visits to town because he was a de la poer, and I now found myself subtly ostracized as well, until I at last convinced the peasants how little I knew of my heritage. Even then they sullenly disliked me, so I had to collect most of the village traditions through the mediation of Norris. What the people could not forgive, I imagine, was that I had come to restore an old symbol, so abhorrent to them, for, rationally or not, they viewed Exum Priory as nothing less than a haunt of fiends and werewolves. Piecing together the tales which Norris collected for me, and supplementing them with the accounts of several savants who had studied the ruins, I deduced that Exum Priory had stood on the site of some prehistoric temple, a druidical or anti-druidical thing, which must have been contemporary even to Stonehenge. That indescribable rites had been celebrated there, few doubted. Inscriptions were still visible in the sub-cellar bore, 
Such unmistakable letters as D-I-V, O-P-S, Magna Mat, a sign of the Magna Mater, the All-Mother, whose dark worship was once vainly been forbidden. Of my family before this date, there's no evil report, but something strange must have happened then. In one chronicle, there's a reference to the De La Poer as the curse of God, whilst village legendry had nothing but evil and frantic fear to tell of the castle that went up on the foundations of the old temple and priory. The fireside tales were of the most grisly description. They represented my ancestors and their ancestors before as a race of hereditary demons and hinted whisperingly at their responsibility for the occasional disappearance of villagers through several generations. The worst characters, apparently, were the estate's master and its direct heirs. There were hints of an inner cult presided over by the head of the house, and sometimes closed to all except a few members. Temperament more than ancestry was evidently the basis of the cult, for it was entered in by several who married into the family. One lady, Margaret Trevor, for example, became a favorite bane of children all over the countryside and the demon heroine of a particular horrible old ballad, not yet extinct. Preserved in balladry too, though, not illustrating the same point, was the hideous tale of Lady Mary de la Poer, who shortly after her marriage was killed by a son. These myths and ballads, typically as they were of crude superstition, repelled me greatly. Their persistence and their application to so long a line of my ancestors was especially annoying. I was much less disturbed by the vaguer tales of strange wails and howlings in the barren windswept valley beneath the limestone cliff, of the graveyard stenches after the rains, of the floundering squealing white things on which Sir John Clave's horse had once trod upon in the night of a lonely field. These things were hackneyed spectral lore and I was at this time a pronounced skeptic. A few of the tales were exceedingly picturesque and made me wish I had learned more of comparative mythology in my youth. There was, for instance, the belief that a legion of bat-winged devils kept witches' Sabbath each night at the Priory, a legion whose substance might explain the disproportionate abundance of coarse vegetables harvested in the vast gardens. Most vivid of all, there was the dramatic epic of the rats the scampering army of obscene vermin, which had burst forth from the castle three months after the mysterious tragedy that had doomed it to desertion. A lean, filthy, and ravenous army, which had swept all before it and devoured fowl, cats, dogs, hogs, sheep, and even two hapless human beings before its fury was spent. Around the unforgettable rodent army, a whole separate cycle of myths revolved for it was said that they scattered amongst all the village homes and brought endless curses and horrors in their wake. Such was the lore that assailed me as I pushed to completion, with an elderly obstinacy, the work of restoring my ancestral home. When the task was done, over two years after its commencement, I viewed the great rooms, wainscoted walls, vaulted ceilings, and broad staircases with a pride that fully compensated for the prodigious expense of the restoration. The seat of my father was complete, and I looked forward to redeeming at last the local fame of the line which ended in me. I would reside there permanently and prove that a de la poer, for I had again adopted the original spelling of my bastard ancestor's last name, need not to be a fiend. 
As I have said, I moved there on July 16, 1923. My household consisted of seven servants and nine cats, of which the latter species I'm particularly fond. My eldest cat, Black Tom, was seven years old and had come with me from my home in Virginia. The others I had accumulated whilst living with Captain Norrie's family during the restoration of the Priory. For five days, our routine proceeded with the utmost placidity, my time being spent mostly in the compiling of old family data. I had now obtained my circumstantial accounts of the final tragedy and flight of Walter de la Poer, which I conceived to be the probable contents of my family's hereditary papers, lost in the fires at Carfax. It appeared that my ancestor was accused, with much reason, of having killed all the other members of his household in their sleep, about two weeks after some shocking discovery which changed his whole demeanor. This deliberate slaughter, which included his father, three brothers, and two sisters, went unnoticed by the villagers at first, until Walter had made his way, disguised and unharmed, away to Virginia. What discovery had prompted an act so terrible, I could scarcely even conjecture. Walter de la Poer must have known for years the sinister tales about his family. Surely this material could have provided no fresh impulse. Had he then witnessed some appalling ancient rite, or stumbled upon some frightful and revealing symbol in the priory or its vicinity? He was reputed to have been a shy, gentle youth. In Virginia, he seemed not so much hard or bitter, as harassed and apprehensive. He was spoken of in the diary of a peer, a gentleman adventurer by the name of Francis Harley of Bellevue, as a man of unexampled justice, honor, and delicacy. On July 22nd occurred the first incident which, though lightly dismissed at the time, takes on a preternatural significance in the relation to later events. What I afterward remembered is this that my old black cat, whose moods I know so well, was undoubtedly alert and anxious to an extent wholly out of his character. He roved from room to room, restless and disturbed, and sniffed constantly about the walls, which formed part of the old Gothic structure. The following day, a servant complained of restlessness among the cats in the house. He came to me in my study, a lofty west room on the second story, and even as I spoke, I saw the feline form of Black Tom creeping along the west wall and scratching at the new panels which overlaid the ancient stone. I told the man that there must be some singular odor or emanation from the old stonework, imperceptible to human senses, but affecting the delicate organs of the cats throughout the woodwork. This I truly believed, and when the fellow suggested the presence of mice or rats, I mentioned that there had been no rats there for a hundred years and that even the field mouse of the surrounding county could hardly be found in these high walls. That afternoon I called on Captain Norris, and he assured me that it would be quite incredible for field mouse to infest the priory in such a sudden and unprecedented fashion. That night I retired in the west tower chamber, which I had since chosen as my own. This room was circular, very high, and seeing that Black Tom was with me, I shut the heavy Gothic door and retired by light of the electric bulbs with so cleverly counterfeited candles. Finally switching off the light and sinking on the canopy bed, with the venerable cat in his accustomed place down by my feet, I did not draw the curtains, but gazed out at the narrow north window. There was a suspicion of aurora in the sky, and the delicate traceries of the window seemed pleasantly silhouetted. 
At some time, I must have fallen asleep, for I recall a distinct sense of having strange, frightening dreams, when suddenly the cat started up violently from its placid position. I saw him in the faint auroral glow of the window, head strained forward, four feet on my ankles and hind feet stretched behind. He was looking intensely at a point on the wall somewhat to the left of the window, a point which to my eye had nothing unique about it, but toward which all his attention was now being directed. And as I watched, I knew that Black Tom was not vainly excited, for I cannot say if the tapestry actually moved then, but I think it did very slightly. However, what I can swear to is that behind it I heard a low distinct scurrying, as of rats or mice. In that moment the cat jumped fully at the tapestry, bringing the whole section down with his weight and exposing a damp ancient wall of stone behind it. It had been patched here and there by the restorers, yet the work was left unfinished, and in either case it seemed certainly devoid of rodent prowlers. Black Tom raced up and down the floor by the section of the wall, clawing at the fallen tapestry and seemingly trying at times to insert a paw somehow between the wall and the floor. This was done in vain, of course, and after a time he returned wearily to his place across my feet. I had not moved during any of this, and neither did I sleep at all again that night. In the morning, I questioned all the servants and found that none of them had noticed anything unusual the night before, save that the cook remembered the actions of a cat which had rested on the windowsill. This cat had howled at some unknown hour of the night, awaking the cook just in time to see him dart purposefully out of the door and down the stairs. I drowsed away the noontime, and in the afternoon called again on Captain Norris, who became exceedingly interested in what I told him. The odd incidents appealed to his sense of picturesque, and elicited from him a number of reminiscences of local ghostly lore. Genuinely perplexed at the presence of rats, Norris lent me some traps which I had servants place in strategic localities when I returned. I retired early being very sleepy, but this was harassed again by dreams of the most horrible sort. In them, I seemed to be knee-deep in filth, in some twilight grotto, looking down from an immense height, where a white-bearded demon drove about with his staff some flock of flabby, fungus-like beasts whose appearances filled me with unutterable fear. Then, as the swineherd paused and nodded over his task, a mighty swarm of rats rained down upon him and the stinking abyss and fell to devouring all beasts and man alike. From this horrific vision I was abruptly awakened by the motions of Black Tom, who had been sleeping as usual across my feet. This time I did not have to question the source of his snarls and hisses, nor the fear which made him seek his claws into my ankle, unconscious of their effect. For on every side of the chamber the walls were alive with nauseous sounds and verminous slithering of ravenous gigantic rats. As I reached to turn on the lights, the bulbs leaping into radiance, it seemed as though the walls themselves were shaking hideously. The sound subsided, and springing out of bed I examined a circular trap that had been placed in the room and found that while all the openings had been sprung, no trace remained of what had been caught and escaped. Further sleep was out of the question, so lighting the candle, I opened the door and went out into the gallery toward the stairs to my study, Black Tom following at my heels. Before we reached the stone steps, however, the cat darted ahead of me and vanished down the ancient flight. As I descended the stairs myself, 
I became suddenly aware of sounds in the great room below, sounds of a nature which could not be mistaken. The oak panel walls were alive with rats, scampering and milling, whilst Black Tom raced about with the fury of a baffled hunter. Reaching the bottom, I switched on the light, which did not this time cause the noise to subside. The rats continued their ride, stampeding with such force and distinctness that I could finally assign to their motions a definite direction. These creatures, in numbers apparently inexhaustible, were engaged in one stupendous migration from inconceivable heights to some death inconceivably low. I now heard steps in the corridor, and in another moment two servants pushed open the massive door. They were searching the house for some unknown source of disturbance which had thrown all the cats into a snarling panic and caused them to plunge precipitately down several flights of stairs to where they now were seen squat and yowling before the closed door to the sub-cellar. I asked the servants if they had heard the rats, but they replied no. And when I turned to call their attention to the sounds in the panels, I realized the noise had ceased. With the two servants, I went down to the door of the sub-cellar, but found that the cats had already dispersed. Later, I resolved to explore the crypt below, but for the present, I merely made a round to inspect the traps. All were sprung, yet all were tenantless. I sat in my study till morning, recalling every scrap of legend I had unearthed concerning the building I now inhabited. I slept in late, telephoning Captain Norris later in the afternoon to come over and help explore the subcellar. Nothing was found at the time, although we could not repress a thrill at the knowledge that this vault was built by such very ancient hands. Norris and I, by the light of lanterns, came across several rectangular stone blocks with symbols upon them, but could not make out the meaning of any of them. The blocks seemed almost altar-like, and upon one was carved a circular image, like that of a sun. There were brown stains covering it, which made me wonder. The largest block in the center of the room had certain features upon its surface which indicated some connection with fire, possibly burnt offerings. Such were the sights in that crypt before which those cats had howled, and where Norris and I determined to pass along the night. Couches were brought down by the servants, who were told not to mind any nocturnal actions of cats. Black Tom was admitted as much for help as for companionship. We decided to keep the great oak door, a modern replica with slits for ventilation, tightly closed, and with this attended to, we retired to await whatever might occur. The vault was very deep in the foundations of the priory, and undoubtedly went far down into the face of the limestone cliff overlooking the waste valley. That it had been any sort of goal for the scuffling, unexplainable rats, I could no longer doubt, though why, I could not tell. As we lay there expectantly, I found my vigil occasionally mixed with half-formed dreams from which the uneasy motions of the cat across my feet would rouse me. These dreams were not wholesome, but horrible, like the one I had the night before. I saw again the twilight grotto and the swine herd with its unmentionable fungus beasts, wallowing in filth. And as I looked at these things, they seemed nearer and more distinct, so distinct that I could almost observe their features. Then I did observe the flabby features of one of them, and awakened with such a scream that Black Tom jumped up, 
while Captain Norris, who hadn't yet slept, laughed considerably. Norris might have laughed more, or perhaps less, had he known what it was that made me scream. But I did not remember myself at the time, only later. Ultimate horror often paralyzes memory in a merciful way. Indeed, there was much to listen to and see, for beyond the closed door at the head of the stone steps was a veritable nightmare of feline yelling and clawing, while Black Tom, not mindful of his kindred outside, was running excitedly around the bare stone walls. And then, the babble of scurrying multitudes. An acute terror now rose within me, for here were anomalies which nothing normal could well explain. These rats, if not the creatures of madness which I shared with the cats alone, must be somehow burrowing and sliding through solid limestone blocks. And why did Norris not hear their disgusting commotion? Why did he urge me excitedly to watch Black Tom and listen to the frantic cats outside, guessing wildly and vaguely at what could have aroused them? By the time I had managed to tell him, as rationally as I could, what I thought I was hearing, my ears gave me the last fading impression of the scurrying, which had retreated even farther downward. Norris was not as skeptical as I had anticipated, but instead seemed profoundly moved. He motioned for me to notice that the cats at the door had ceased their clamor, as if giving up the rats, whilst Black Tom seemed to have a burst of renewed restlessness, clawing frantically around the bottom of the large stone altar at the center of the room, which was nearer Nori's couch than mine. My fear of the unknown was at this point very great. We could for the moment do nothing but watch the old black cat as he pawed with decreasing fervor at the base of the altar, occasionally looking up and mewing to me in that persuasive manner which he used when he wished for me to perform some favor. Norris now took a lantern close to the altar and examined the edge places where Black Tom was pawing. He did not find anything and was about to abandon his effort when I noticed a trivial circumstance that made me shudder. The flame of the lantern set down by the altar was slightly flickering out. With his face full of wonder, Norris gave the central altar a nudge, causing it to tilt backwards, balanced by some unknown species of counterweight. Through a fresh square opening in the tiled floor, triggered by the movement of the stone block, sprawled down a long flight of stone steps, so prodigiously worn that it was a little more than an inclined plane at this point. And scattered among the plane was a ghastly array of human or semi-human bones. Those who retained their skeletal, mummified expressions revealed attitudes of both panic and fear. But upon all were the many marks of rodents gnawing. The skulls of some denoted nothing short of cretinism or primitive semi-apedom. And farther below the hellishly littered steps continued a passage seemingly chiseled out from the solid rock. It was then that Captain Norris examined the hewn walls, made the odd observation that the passage, according to the direction of the strokes, must have been somehow chiseled up from below. I must be very deliberate now and choose my words carefully. After plowing down a few steps amidst the gnawed bones, we saw that there was light up ahead. Not any mystic phosphorescence, but a filtered daylight which could not come from anywhere but some unknown fissures in the cliff overlooking the valley. A few steps more, 
and our breasts were literally snatched from us. Norris, his plump face utterly white and flabby, simply cried out inarticulately, while I think all that I managed was a gasp or hiss, and then to cover my eyes. My God, whispered Norris. It was a vast, dimly shown grotto of enormous height, stretching out farther than any eye could see. A subterraneous world of limitless mystery and horrible suggestion. There were buildings and other architectural remains. In one terrified glance, I saw the weird pattern of ancient burial mounds, a savage circle of forsaken monoliths, a low-dome Roman ruin, a sprawling Egyptian pile, and early English edifices of carved wood. But all these were dwarfed by the ghoulish spectacle presented by the general surface of the ground below. For beyond the steps extended an insane tangle of human bones, or bones at least as human as those on the steps. Like a foamy sea they stretched, some fallen apart, but others wholly or partly articulated as full skeletons. These latter invariably differed in postures of demonic frenzy, fighting off some menace, or clutching other crazed forms with cannibal intent. The skulls were baffling. Some were thick, crude, and oddly shaped, while others were thin, familiar, and sensitively developed. Yet all the bones were gnawed, gnawed mostly by rats, but not only by rats. Norris and I were speechless as we observed our surroundings in horror and came to the mutual conclusion that the events before us must have taken place here for hundreds, thousands of years. Longer than that. All around, the bones of rats mixed with skeletal things that must have descended as quadrupeds throughout the last twenty or more generations. It was the antechamber of hell, and horror piled up upon horror as Norris and I began to interpret deeper the scattered architectural remains around us. These quadruped things with their occasional cousins from the biped class. They had been kept in apparent stone pens, out of which they must have one day at last broken free during a final bit of delirium or hunger or rat fear. There had been great herds of them, this much was clear. Evidently, they flattened on the coarse vegetables, whose remains could be found now as some sort of poisonous ensilage at the bottom of the huge stone bins below. And I knew now why the De La Poer family had had such extensive gardens. Would to heaven I could forget. The gruesome purpose of these herds I did not think upon. Through all this horror, my cat stalked unperturbed. Once I saw him monstrously perched upon a mountain of bones and wondered at the secrets that might lie behind his yellow eyes. We shall never know what sightless Stygian words yawn beyond the little distance we went, for it was decided that such secrets are not good for mankind. But there was plenty to engross us close at hand, for we had not gone far before the searchlights showed fully that accursed infinity of pits in which the rats had feasted, and whose sudden lack of replenishment had driven the ravenous rodent army to turn then on the living herds of starving things and then to burst forth from the priory at that historic orgy of devastation which the peasants to this day will never forget. God, those Karen black pits of sod picked upon bones and opened up skulls, 
those nightmare chasms, choked with the bones of Pithecanthropoid, Celt, Roman, English, for countless unhallowed centuries. Some of the pits were full, but none can say how deep they had once been. The others were still bottomless to our searchlights. Once, upon our rapid return, my foot slipped near a horribly yawning brink, and I had a moment of ecstatic fear. I must have been musing, for only far ahead could I see the figure of plump Captain Norris. It was then there came a sound from below, in that inky, boundless, far distance that I imagined I once thought I could conceive of. And I saw my old black cat dart past me down the steps like a winged Egyptian god, straight into the illimitable gulf of the unknown below. For it was not far behind, there was no doubt. The eldritch scurrying of those fiend-born rats, always questing for new horrors, always determined to lead us into such grinning caverns as Earth's center, where Narthlotep, the mad faceless god, housed blindly, along with the piping of two amorphous idiot flutes. My searchlight had expired, but still I ran. I heard voices and yowls and echoes, but above all, there rose gently that deep, insidious scurrying, rising up, always rising like a stiff, bloated corpse rolling endlessly in an oily onyx sea. Why shouldn't rats eat a de la Poire? I thought to myself, as it seems the de la Poire once ate forbidden things too. The war ate my boy, damn them all. And the Yanks, the Yanks ate Carfax with flames, flames that ate my grandfather, flames that ate our history, our secrets. No, 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 I tell you. I am not that demon swine herd in the grotto. It was not Edward Norrie's fat face on that flabby fungus thing. Who says I am a de la Poire? He lived, but my boy died? And will the Norris always hold our lands? It's evil, I tell you. Ancient. The spotted snake. Curse you, Norris. I'll teach you to faint at what my family do. Blood, thou stinkard. Am's not I, my father's son? You won't deny me, won't deny me. Would ye how to swank a magna mater? Dolphus or Lipsa? Ugh. That is what they say I said when they found me in the blackness after three hours. Found me crouching in the blackness over the plump, half-eaten body of Captain Norris, with my own cat leaping and tearing at my throat. Now they have blown up Exum Priory, taken my black Tom away from me, and shut me in this barred room at Hanwell Institution with fearful whispers about my heredity and my experiences. When I speak of poor Norris, they accuse me of hideous things. But they must know that I did not do it. They must know it was the rats. The slithering, scurrying rats, whose scampering will never let me sleep. The demon rats that race behind the padded walls of this very room and beckon me down to even greater horrors. The rats they can never hear. The rats. 
the rats in the walls. And that was our story. Hope you enjoyed it. Couple things of note with this particular story. Long after writing The Rats in the Walls, Lovecraft wrote that the story was, quote, suggested by a very commonplace incident, the cracking of wallpaper late at night, and the change of imaginings resulting from it. That might have been the quick soundbite answer, and certainly one of my favorite scenes in the story is when Black Tom is clawing at the imaginary impossibilities in the corner and the curtain in the night. Whose cat hasn't done that every now and then, huh? But there's a lot of subtext behind the story and clear influences from other sources. Literary analyst and author Stephen Maraconda points to Sabine Baring Gould's 1862 book Curious Myths of the Middle Ages as one source for Lovecraft's story. The description of the cavern under the priory has many similarities to Baring Gould's account of St. Patrick's Purgatory, a legendary Irish holy site, and the story of the priory's rats sweeping across the landscape may have been inspired by the book's retelling of the legend of Bishop Hatto, who was devoured by rats after he set fire to starving peasants during a famine. Yikes, might have to pick a copy of that thing up for myself. Moral to the story, if people are starving, the countless unseen rats and vermin that often live all around us tend to be pretty damn hungry too. A big influence, of course, is a slightly earlier contemporary and inspiration to Lovecraft, Edgar Allan Poe, The Fall of the House of Usher. In both, you see not just literal ruins, but figurative ruins used to represent secrets and fears that have been long ago buried, and which ultimately lead to the complete collapse of the character's sense of self. In both, you see repressed truths about the protagonist's families, origins, and how we can never fully run from them, much less bury and forget them. In the end, you can take the cannibal out of the secret underground human harvesting pits in the basement of the dilapidated priory, but you can't take the secret underground human harvesting pits in the basement of the dilapidated priory out of the cannibal. Let's go now to our 100-character story winner this week by Drabblecast Forum member Big Dumb Yak. Here it is. The scraping sound drags me from my sleep. I cannot move. I cannot scream. I could, but I'd wake up the cat. Death can wait. Each week, of course, we run a contest through our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org in the TwitFix section, where you fans can submit 100-character stories, not counting spaces. We have a handy 100-character sizing tool there for you to make it easy. We pick a winner each week and post it early on our Twitter feed, at Drabblecast. Follow us there for those and other goodies, and hit up forums.drabblecast.org and give it a go. You might be next week's winner. The Travelcast is brought to you with a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. Tell a friend. Spread the weird. 
If you enjoyed our show this week and what we do, consider making a donation to the Drabblecast by visiting Drabblecast.org and selecting from the various support options there. You can donate once, you can donate monthly in an automated way. If you sign up for our automated $10 a month subscription level, you get access to Drabblecast B-Sides, which gives extra content each month. And you support your favorite podcast, so win-win there. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Travelcast art director Bo Kyer. Bo is weird to the core and talented to boot. Follow his awesome art on Instagram, at Bo Kyer. Our program this week was brought to you by Melissa Harvey, Tom Baker, Jason Smith, Samantha Henderson, Zimmerman Bledsoe, a dead wasp on your front porch that suddenly looks straight up at you, Sandra O'Dell, Bo Kyer, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you... Ultimate horror often paralyzes memory in a merciful way. We shall never know what sightless Stygians, Stygian, Stygian, Stygian worlds. Let's look that up. Straight into the illimitable, illimitable. Who who says words? Who writes this? Those nightmare chasms choke with the bones of shit pithecanthropic pithecanthropic pithecanthropoid pithecanthropoid okay where narthlotep where yarthlothnotep damn it <laughs> oh shit and cause them to plunge precipitately precipit precipitately <clears throat> precipitately precipitately which so many had eschewed, eschewed, eschewed. I hate that word, even when I'm reading it in the Bible. <clears throat> I saw him in the faint auroral. I saw him in the faint auroral. <laughs> I saw him in the faint auroral. I saw him in the faint auroral. I saw him in the faint auroral. Which so many had eschewed. I hate that word. I saw him in the faint auroral. I saw him in the faint auroral. I saw him in the faint auroral, which so many had issues. Who says words? I learned you how to swing. I learned you how to shit. I learned you how to wear yard look, yard look, no doubt. Magna mater, pithecanthropoid. Adolphus or Angus Lisa. <laughs> I sound retarded. <laughs>